Please open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 7. Before we turn to studying God's word, would you pray with me, asking the Lord's help on us. Father, it is indeed a great comfort when we reflect on that sentence, I know that my Redeemer lives. We know that our Redeemer lives. And because he lives, we too shall live with him. We too shall one day be with you. Glory, hallelujah. Our Father, I pray that you will give us great joy even as we enter into this text. That you will grant us humility, that we may hear it, that we may receive it. And Father, I pray whatever shortcomings we find and we will remember that they are shortcomings in us, shortcomings in me to explain it, but they are not shortcomings in your word. For your word is good, it is perfect, and it is able to succeed, always will succeed in the thing to which you send it. So Father, we pray that today, by your grace, your word, through the power of your spirit, will accomplish your good purposes in us. We pray all this in our Savior's name, Christ Jesus. Amen. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to look from verses 15 to the end of the chapter, but before we do so, I have one question for you. If you could ask God two questions this morning, what might those questions be? If you could ask God two questions and know that you would get an answer, I'm sure many of you in prayer and in frustration and grief and joy perhaps have asked God a question. In grief and sorrow and affliction, you may have asked, why me, O Lord? In joy, you may have asked, why me? But if you could ask the Lord two questions, what would that be? What would they be? It might be really good questions to think about, to write down. It might be good questions for you to talk to someone else about later. Imagine if this week you went out with someone for coffee or tea or lunch or breakfast and you talked about the questions that you would ask God and then you tried to encourage each other from the word about how to think through those questions. But what if this afternoon you were given the opportunity to ask God two questions and you could guarantee that he would answer them? What would you ask? And of course, what you ask is going to be dependent on a whole lot of things, isn't it? I mean, teenage boys are not, probably not going to ask the same questions that a mature man in years is going to ask. A woman who has just had a baby is not probably going to ask the same questions as a woman who has just lost one. Someone who has just gotten married may not ask the same questions as someone who has just experienced the pain of divorce. Not only that, but not only our circumstances, but by what we're reading in God's Word. That will change the questions we ask. I mean, if you're, if you're reading and studying and meditating on Genesis, my guess is your questions will be different than if you were reading and studying and meditating on Revelation. Right? Two different books, very different the questions you might ask God are going to be based on those. Or our text is going to rise. So many questions. Lord, what questions might you ask based on the text that we're going to read and we're going to study this morning versus if you were reading the book of Romans. So not only think about what questions you might ask, but what, what are those things in your life that are prompting you to reflect on those questions? We have a marvelous thing in our text Daniel asks the Lord two questions, and he receives answers to both of them. That is an incredible thing. And it's not difficult for us to understand why he asks the questions that he does. In the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has been given a, a vision of what is to come. Multiple beasts are arising out of the sea, and it, it, these beasts are, are something out of like a Japanese movie, right? Like Godzilla and other things coming up out of the sea. Great, terrifying creatures coming up and like 
destroying villages. Or, or maybe if you're young, not like Godzilla, you may not even know who that is. Think like Pokemon characters, right? They're crazy conglomerations of, of different kinds of beasts. There's lions, but they've got wings attached. And, and then there's a bear, and then there's another creature that's kind of different creatures put together. And then there's a fourth beast that's unlike anything else. And then that fourth beast has ten horns. And then one horn comes up and supplants the other, or at least three of those horns. And then that horn has eyes and lips, and it starts speaking defiant things. It, it's, it defies trying to picture it. Sometimes after the service, a children will come, they'll bring me the notes, or they'll bring me pictures they try to draw of the sermon during the sermon, you know, their, their note-taking ability. And um, if they were to draw these kinds of creatures, it would become almost comical. It defy any kind of real representation. These are pictures, these are symbols that are are picturing historical and future realities. And it has left Daniel stunned. He sees these visions of these beasts rising up, and then we are told in verses 9 and 10 that the Ancient of Days comes, and he destroys the fourth beast. And then in verses 11 and 12, we kind of have a, a summary of the defeat of all the beasts. But then in verses 13 to 14, we find the Son of Man coming and setting up a kingdom that shall not pass away. And Daniel receives this vision, and he is stunned. We see that in verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. He is anxious. Perhaps when we were just describing that, when we were reading that before, you were anxious. Perhaps you would be so even more if you received a vision like this from the Lord and knew it meant something, knew you were supposed to understand it, knew it was important for you and important for the people of God, and you had no idea what it was. Daniel is anxious here, grieved in his spirit. He's, he's troubled. It's understandable. And so he has two questions. We read in verse 16 that he approaches, I, I came near to one of those who stood by. This would be one of those angels that is described before the throne of the Son of Man. And this it is typical both it is typical in apocalyptic literature in that is in Dan, the end of Daniel 7 I'm sorry Daniel 7 all the way to 12 and then again we find this kind of uh, this happening in, in Revelation where someone receives either Daniel here or the apostle John they receive a vision from the Lord and then they go to an angel to help them understand and interpret it this is this is normal I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this so what he's asking is really simple. What does all this mean? <laughs> Isn't that a great question? <laughs> okay, what does all this mean, O oh Lord? What, what, is going on, all, what is going on here? He asked him the truth of all this. And so he is given an explanation. The end of verse 16 so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, or we might say four kingdoms. And we can say four kingdoms because later on, the, the fourth beast is going to be described as a kingdom. So four beasts, I'm sorry, four kings, four kingdoms. Four kings, kingdoms which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Here's the big picture question is, what is going on here? What is the point of all this? What's happening? Where is all this headed? What does this all mean? And the angel very helpfully, the Lord through the angel sums it up. Four beasts and four kings, they're going to arise out of the earth. They're going to cause hardship and suffering on God's people. That's implied. But the upshot is this. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. 
That's the point. It will be hard, but the saints will receive the kingdom. And that begs the question, who, who are these saints? For those of you who grew up in, a, in the Roman Catholic Church, or in some tradition in which saints were this spiritually elite group, this special category of, of God's people, you could pray to, you could receive benefits from, you might wear their image around on, on a necklace around your, uh, around your neck. You might have that in mind. These are the saints that are being talked about. But that, when you go to the scripture, that idea is never found. The idea of the saints is never, descri- is never used to describe a special group or an elite group of people. The saints of God are always those who are trusting in God. So you might say the saints of God, not only are they not all people, not only not a spiritually elite group of people, they are also not the Jewish people. As Paul will write in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. Because not all have believed. Not all are believers in God. Not all are saints. Who are those saints? Not only those who are related, not not merely those who are related to Abraham through birth, but those who are connected to Abraham through faith. They share in his faith in God. Those are who the saints of God are. Those who believe in God, who hold to his promises, especially in hope in Christ. These are the saints who will receive the kingdom. And that word is massively important. They receive the kingdom. Unlike what is often taught by in liberal churches or even today Christian nationalists, God's people do not earn the kingdom. We do not usher the kingdom in. We do not create the kingdom. We do not build the kingdom. We do not establish the kingdom. None of those things are things that you and I can do at all. The kingdom of Christ isn't something that we as Christians can bring in through social action or political action. It is something that is given. It is something we receive. It is not like what post-millennialists may teach, that if we as Christians can establish more and more of a Christian foothold politically, socially, culturally in this world, and we can do that enough around the globe, then after a period of time, then Christ will enter in and will finish what we have begun. It's unlike amillennialists, where this kingdom only comes after the fourth beast is destroyed, something that is depicted as yet future to us. No, this is a kingdom that we receive or we might say in the words of the New Testament, we inherit. We inherit. It is a gift, a gracious creation and work of God in Christ that while spiritually in some way we can say already exists for those who are in Christ, we are in His kingdom, yet it is still something that is yet future. The establishment of on earth is yet future. We look forward to. But the primary point here, the end, the telos, the terminus, the resolution, the consummation of all things, is that though the nations may rise up and though they may come and though they may defy God, increasingly so, yet the saints of God are the ones who will receive the kingdom. The meek will inherit the earth. And that leads to Daniel's second question. He's gotten the big picture view. Now he kind of narrows in and he asks one question. If the first question was him asking in the truth of all this, we find in verse 19, now he's narrowing the focus. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others. And now he's going to describe that fourth beast. And as he describes this fourth beast, he's going to see even more about it than he described before. And he's going to describe what's going on, and he's going to kind of add on to his answer, or add on to his question as he is describing. So read along with me. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, 
beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely this, this large horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. And as I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So Daniel here, he's like, all right, I've got the big picture. The saints of God inherit the kingdom in the end. Okay, I got that. Can you answer me this question about the fourth beast? What is going on with this thing? What, what is it? What is happening? What does it mean? I think that's a really good question. Personally, I might have asked for some more detail. I, personally, I wish Daniel was given like, Maybe a third question, a fourth question, maybe a list of questions he could have asked. That would have, sure, it would have made Daniel 7 a lot longer, but it would have answered a lot of our questions, wouldn't it? But he's given two questions. This fourth beast is terrifying and destructive. And he asks these questions and he sees that this beast is going to have, this, this kingdom, this king, is going to reign, it'll have ten horns, ten kings, ten world leaders. So in some sense, we are historically, we were able to say earlier, in some sense we are able to tie this beast to Rome. And yet in some sense we look forward. This beast doesn't quite fit the historical record of what we have in Rome. There is an element in which these ten horns, that is yet future, yet something to come. And it's going to make war with the saints of God. More than this, it's going to feel like this beast is winning. You notice, it's prevailing. It is prevailing over the saints. It is beating them. It is destroying them. It is frustrating them. It is harming them. But there is graciously an end date to this horn's reign of terror. He dominates and destroys God's people until, verse 22, you read that? He's prevailing against them, end of verse 21, and then verse 22 begins with that wonderful word, until. Oh, he's given a time of victory. He's given a time in which he will cause the people of God, the saints of God, to suffer. But there is an expiration date till, to his reign of terror. He destroys God's people until he is himself destroyed by the coming of the Ancient of Days, described in verses 9 to 10. At that time, God vindicates his people. That is, he makes a judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And he judges their enemies, destroying their enemies. And the saints are then able to possess the kingdom. And if you look back at verses 11 and 12, these details are, are described there as well. The Ancient of Days comes in verses 9 to 12 with fire and judgment. And in verse 11... We are told, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So the Ancient of Days comes and his, it, he's pictured as having a throne that's got wheels so that basically his judgment is everywhere and issuing from his throne is a stream of fire and this beast is destroyed by fire by the coming of the Ancient of Days. Turn with me, if you can, Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Because I believe the Apostle John helps us understand Daniel chapter 7, verse 11, and what's going on here. He, he breaks it out. He unpacks verse 11 and what's happening with the fourth beast. He unpacks it a little bit. Revelation 19, and I'm going to read verses 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured I'm sorry, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It is a stark picture of the judgment of Christ Jesus, who is described as the Ancient of Days. The very description of him, the beginning of Revelation 19, coincides with the description of the Ancient of Days. What about verse 12? Verse 12, as the rest, as for the rest of the beasts, so the, the fourth beast is destroyed, and the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here's the picture. The fourth beast, in its defiance against God, is destroyed. And yet these other kingdoms that are still in opposition against God, they find their power, they're still existing, but they find their power taken from them for a time, a season and a time. Or we might say, until they rise up. And I believe that is described, we, we have that in Daniel 7, not only 7.12, but 7.22. After God delivers his people through destroying their enemy, then we find the time when the king, when the saints possess the kingdom. And I think this is, keep your finger in Daniel 7, but if you've kept your finger there in Revelation 19, just turn the page to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Here we have this text telling us of the kingdom of Christ set up on earth after he has judged the nations. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him four thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you see that similarity? The saints possess the kingdoms, they are reigning with Christ, and here in Revelation chapter 20, they are again, they are raising, reigning with Christ, they are reigning with the Son of Man. And just as we read in Daniel 7, 12, that the other beasts were allowed to continue for a season and time, so in verses 7 to 12 of Revelation chapter 20, I'm sorry, 7 to 10 of Revelation 20, we read of these nations rising back up. And when the nations are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is how I think the Apostle John is understanding Daniel chapter 7. I, I very much understand that just in reading those passages raises up a whole lot of other questions. 
But John didn't ask, I'm sorry, Daniel didn't ask those, and we don't have time to ask those ourselves. But here's the summary. The saints of God are going to endure hardship at the hands of those who oppose the Lord. They're going to suffer hardship until Christ comes, until Christ judges the nations, sets up his kingdom, reigns with his people on earth for a season and a time, and then when the nations oppose him one last time, he will destroy them once and for all. And all of this precedes God's final act of restoring and recreating heaven on earth and the new heavens and the new earth. And all of this is explained by the angel in response to Daniel's second question. And you see that in verses 23 and 27. Follow along as I read. And you can see it's, in my Bible, it's very clearly laid out in poetry. It's almost as if the, dan- the, the angel sings this next part. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words, arrogant words, God-defying words, and he's going to speak these arrogant words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law or times and seasons. And the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. This fourth kingdom, which is Rome, becomes a symbol of that final kingdom in rebellion against God. This final kingdom will dominate the earth through violence and oppression and injustice. And just as Rome did, again and again and again, that final kingdom will persecute the people of God again and again and again. And while there will be ten world leaders, one will supplant three of those, ascend to power, taking to himself the authority that only that belongs to God alone. He's, he's going to try to change the times and the seasons. According to Daniel chapter 2, 21, that's something that only God can do. He alone has that authority. But here, this final world ruler, it's on him. He is going to do it. And we have seen examples in the past that have attempted to do such things, and there will be clearly be things in the future. Here is one who claims to take authority and power that belongs to God to take it to himself. But in the end, this king, this ruler will be destroyed. And I just want to draw out two important observations from this text. There there is a lot here, and I I recognize there are many questions we would love to have answered. As I was writing this, I was halfway through, and I had had about 10 pages of notes. I I usually have much less than that when I preach, and I knew I was going to have to cut stuff out. We just do not have time. Let me draw two important observations for us. Because this this vision was given to Daniel, okay? It was given to Daniel and it was supposed to mean something to him. Mean something to the very people who first heard it and first read it. And if it was supposed to mean something to them, it is supposed to mean something to us. Not merely as a means for us to satisfy our curiosity about how everything is going to work out. But the upshot is, these words are supposed to grip us as they gripped Daniel. The very first thing we need to see here is that if we are going to follow Christ and trust in him, we must be ready to endure severe suffering. The saints of God are going to suffer. And this isn't just ordinary suffering of life. Getting a terminal diagnosis, having health struggles, losing our job, 
conflict with others. That is all real conflict, real difficulty, real suffering, real trials. But that's not what's being described here. What's being described here is opposition to the people of God because they are in fact the people of God. Because they will not bow the knee to the state. Because they will not bow the knee to those who would seek to to alter the times and the seasons. That is, they would seek to declare that which is good, which God declares evil, or to declare evil that which God declares good. God's people will be severe in its brutality. We see this verse 21, this beast, this world leader, is going to make war with the saints. More than that, in verse 25, he is described as one who is going to oppress and persecute. Literally, he's going to wear out the saints. Wear them out like a shirt, like a jacket that just continues to be worn again and again and again until it's nothing but rags. We shall be given into his hand for a season Suffering is going to be severe, and it's going to be severe not only in its brutality, but it's in its duration. All of this is supposed to endure, we are told, for a, a period of time. That is, for times, times, and half a time. The most natural way to understand this is, is three and a half years. And the idea of three and a half years comes up again and again in Daniel and again in Revelation And in some cases, it appears that the three and a half years may be literally, and other times, it seems that it may be figurative. I say that because there are are a number of dates, a number of days that are attached to this time. Here it is times, time, and half a time. In Daniel 8, it's 2,300 mornings and evening, which works itself out to about 1,150 days. There, the context is a little bit different, but the impetus, the, the idea is the same. Intense suffering in a brief period of time. In Daniel 9, it's half of one week. In Daniel 12, 11, it is 1,290 days, which is a little bit longer than three and a half years. And we are told that if you can wait two and a half more months after that 1290 and get to 1335 days, then you will be blessed. But in Revelation, when John describes this three and a half years, he describes it not as 1290, but as 1260. No matter how we see this, the point is that there are going to be intense periods of suffering for the people of God, which means it ought not to surprise us when we when we endure affliction for the name of God. And Christians around the world are, this is their bread and butter. This is their daily bread. They understand what this looks like. It can feel new to us. Because it feels new, it can feel as if it's it's wrong, as as if it's not ordinary, as if it's not supposed to happen. But Daniel is being told it's coming. And it's going to endure. Imagine how he must have responded to such news. For centuries, he is in essence being told, for centuries and centuries and centuries, God's people are going to suffer. What does this have to do with us? Daniel is being made to see the hard reality that it is not God's will that the Lord's people escape suffering. Christ himself prays to the Lord, don't take them out of the world, he's talking about his disciples, but rather keep them, preserve them in it. It is God's good will that his people, whom he loves, learn to trust him through suffering. And the suffering isn't only for those people alive at some point in the future. It is now, and it is something you and I must be ready for. Which begs the question, how are we preparing ourselves to suffer as Christians for the Lord? Are we in any sense? How are we preparing our kids You know, being prepared is a big deal in our day. Those who are preparing for great disasters, they, you know, they're given a nickname, right? Preppers. 
They're building a bomb shelter. They might have a go bag. Some of you have go bags with maybe weapons and food in your car, just in case the zombie apocalypse happens or, you know, some other terrible nuclear strike occurs. You're going to be ready. And we all chuckle at that. But if it happens, we're all going to find you and we're going to come and help, you know, we're going to eat your food. We want to be prepared. And Daniel, the Lord is trying to prepare Daniel as he's trying to prepare you and I that we may be ready. Toughen up our minds. Kids, you're living in a fallen world. I remember as a kid, we would tell our dad when something came along, Dad, this isn't fair. And my dad would just smile at us. Well, the world's not fair, kid. He didn't say kid. He would say son. Get used to it. That was helpful. The world is not fair. But the world is just. And that's going to come out in just a moment. Toughen up your mind. Toughen up your doctrine. Toughen up your grasp of God's word. Toughen up meaningful connection to other believers that we may bear one another and bear with one another. In short, cling to the Lord. Cling to his promises. Cling to his people. Remember him in all hardship. Secondly, remember that God exalts. And this is the thing, all right? So if, if suffering has come, it's coming. And you and I to expect it. And not just any kind of suffering, but intense periods of suffering at the hands of those who have authority over us, merely because we belong to Jesus, merely because we confess him as our Lord, merely because we believe his word and live according to it. If that is true, and it is, the story, the message doesn't end there. As much as you and I must remember that suffering is of the Lord and suffering is coming, we must remember something else. That God exalts those who hope in him. Oh, God, God, I didn't say that right. God exalts those who hope in him. Oh, he describes the suffering the beast is going to make war against his people. He's going to almost wear them out. He's going to prevail against them. But I want you to notice verse 27. This is the note it lands on. Both answers of the angel land on this note of joy. Great joy. Then the kingdom, verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven who are they going to be given to? They're going to be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. God exalts those who by faith endure through suffering. And Daniel has been showing this to us throughout his entire book. In Daniel 1, he and his friends, like many others, they are ripped from their home in Israel, taken to Babylon. There they attested, there they are tested. Hope in God, trust in him, decide that they're going to follow him and not partake of the things in the world. Not, not sacrifice, not compromise. And as a result, they excel. As a result, as a result they are exalted. In Daniel chapter 2, we find the very same thing. Daniel is tested. A dream is given to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel finds himself at the center of this controversy. He and his friends hope in God, and they are exalted. Daniel 3 works it out. Daniel's friends, they are called and commanded like everyone else to bow before this idol, this image made in the, in the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and they are called, and if they do not, they will be thrown into a furnace. They refuse and they are exalted. 
Daniel 4, Daniel 5, Daniel 6, that same theme, those who trust and follow faithfully the Lord, they will be exalted. And so now we have this, not only in his life, but now this is the story of history. Trust in God. It may cost you the world. It will gain you your soul and everything. And what we gain is far greater than anything we can lose. All the kingdoms of the world. And, and we are not mere, it's not that merely that Christ comes down and now we're all just kind of under him. The idea is that we what? We reign with him. That's the idea. That the people of God are kings and queens in their own right. Reigning with and under Christ Jesus. Oh friend, don't put all your eggs in the basket of this life. As you scroll through Facebook, as you scroll through Instagram, as you scroll through Snapchat or whatever it is, like, do, and you see what the world is doing, you see what people get, you see everything, remember what is coming is far better. There is this old story that I've heard preacher, a preacher say, I, I do not know if it's true, but it makes for a good story, so I'm going to give it. There's a story of a, an elderly woman with a pastor who this woman was dying. She knew she was dying. She called her pastor, asked him to come and to help prepare uh, the service for her funeral. She wanted to be a part of the planning of that. And so as they were talking, she was talking through everything that she wanted, all the songs, the testimonies, uh, all, the, all those details. And then she made it clear she wanted, it was going to be an open casket, she wanted there to be a fork placed in her hand so that as people would come by, they would see a fork, which is a pretty curious thing to have in your casket when you are going to be buried. And so the pastor asked the obvious question, why, why do you want to be buried with a fork? And she gave this explanation that I think most of us can relate to. She says, when you go over to someone's house and you eat the meal and you enjoy the meal and it's really good, and then they tell you, hold on to your fork, you know that the best is yet to come you know that the dessert is coming. And I want people to know that the best is yet to come. Paul the Apostle makes the same point. Romans 8.18. Remember all the suffering that Paul the Apostle endured? It was intense. Shipwrecks, beatings, opposition, stoning, chased from one point to another, hated, arrested. And he writes to the Romans, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he says to the Corinthians in chapter 4, for this light and momentary affliction, light and momentary, you know, if, it almost sounds as if Paul hasn't endured anything. But he who has endured enormous affliction, enormous suffering, he says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. They're passing away. But the, un but the things that are unseen, that kingdom, it's eternal. First Peter, Peter jumps on board in 1 Peter 5.10. And he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We have been called not, not to a transient glory, not to a little glory, to an eternal glory. Friend, part of our problem here, even as we are called to suffering, Daniel is being called to keep in mind that the best is yet to come. And the best is so good that no matter how great the suffering we have in this life, it won't even be worth talking about. Perhaps you've gone up to people in a conversation as you're talking, you know, 
you're starting to share, as, as men do sometimes, oh, I've, I've gotten this many stitches, or I have this long of a scar, or I've endured this kind of pain. And you start comparing, this is the hurts, and I've, I've had 20 broken bones, I've had 50 broken bones. You know, men, right? And we describe, this is what we're going through. What we're supposed to see is that the greatness of the glory that is to come so outweighs and outshines all of our suffering that it's going to make us forget it. It's going to make the most, if we could say that there would be the, uh, the least treasurable day in heaven, will make the greatest suffering in this life seem inconsequential. The best is yet to come. Daniel's surprising response to this vision we find at the last verse. Remember, go back to verse 15. Daniel gets the vision. What's his response? I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head, they troubled me. He's anxious. He's a little afraid. He's troubled. So he asks these two questions. Give me the big picture. What's going on? All right, now i got a question about the fourth beast. I want you to explain what's happening here. And so he gets a further explanation. We started this time off thinking, what two questions would you ask the Lord? And we sometimes think, if I could just ask a couple of questions to God, if, if God would answer me and help me understand things, I'd be happy. I'd be content. I'd be more at peace. But Daniel isn't more at peace. In fact, verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed. That same terminology is used to describe King Belshazzar when he is terrified. Do you see what's happening here? Daniel asks questions, two clarifying questions about what's coming. God answers him without going into great detail, but he answers him. And rather than, than increasing his peace, it increases his anxiety, his terror. We are not to think that God is less than merciful or good in what he does not reveal. God is merciful and good not only what he reveals, but in what he conceals. Jesus, in John 16, is able to tell his disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you're not ready to bear them. Or John, the apostle, in the book of Revelation, he hears seven thunders saying something, and he goes to write down what they say, and he is told, do not write them down. I have never wanted to know something in the Bible more than when I read that in Revelation chapter 10. What did they say? God has not revealed everything that you and I might want to know. But God has given us everything we need to know to trust him in this life. And everything he hasn't told us is according to his wise mercy. But even as Daniel is more troubled, more anxious, I would argue, yet he trusts in the Lord. And you see that in the very last phrase. But I kept the matter in my heart. Whether in Genesis chapter 37 or in Luke chapter 2 or in other passages of Scripture, Luke chapter 2 is a great example. Twice, Mary, something goes on with Jesus and we are told she keeps the matter in her heart. That is, she is trusting in the Lord. She doesn't understand what these things mean but she's waiting on God, and she's trusting on him. That's what Daniel is doing. He gets this explanation from the angel. He understands a couple of things 
There's a lot that doesn't make sense to him. He is greatly anxious over it. And yet he trusts the Lord. He keeps the matter in his heart. Brothers and sisters, we do not always know what the future holds, but as the saying goes, we know who holds the future. Daniel is banking on that here. And he's pointing you and I to that same hope. He's pointing you and I to this reality. The God who sent his son into the world to die in the place of sinners will not abandon his people, will not let them go, but he will, through Christ Jesus, he will cause them to persevere under every trial so that he may grant to them every good gift that his son has purchased. Not one good promise of God will be lost. We may not know what God is doing. We may not know why he is doing it. But we may know the one who oversees it all. Oh, friend, brother and sister in Christ, hope in Jesus. Hope in him who wins. Hope in him who has given such incredible promises to those who submit by faith, submit their lives to Jesus, trusting in him alone. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your mercy and grace. Help us, we pray, in the name of your Son, to live in light not only of the reality of life in a fallen world that is opposed to you, but help us live in light of the greater reality, the greater eternal glory that is yet to come, which will so outshine our darkest days on this earth that we will, we will not even begin to think of them. Oh, Lord, let us live in light of that reality that day. Let us live in light of the promises your promises to us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.